0: Dr. Joyce Harmon was raised in the Washington DC area. She started riding horses at a young age and this fueled her interest in veterinary medicine. She got her veterinary degree as a member of the first class at the Virginia, Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine in 1984. After graduation, she held positions studying equine exercise physiology in both England and Ireland. She returned to the United States to work in private equine practice in New Jersey before starting her own practice Harmony Equine in Virginia in 1990. She certified in acupuncture, chiropractic, and advanced homeopathy. She incorporated these modalities into her equine practice while adding computerized saddle fitting services. Soon she limited her practice to holistic therapies and also has written and lectured extensively for over 30 years. Dr. Harmon was involved in the therapeutic options committee For the American Association of Equine Practitioners and was part of the Alternative Medicine Task Force for the American Veterinary Medical Association, helping to write guidelines for the practice of alternative veterinary medicine in the United States. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Joyce Harmon as we discuss her childhood, veterinary education, interest in equine performance science, and the transition into the next phase of her long and distinguished career. Dr. Harmon, thanks for taking the time tonight.
1: You're welcome. Glad to be here. Hey, so where uh, where did you grow up? Actually, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. Um, one of the few natives. And uh, ended up back here in Virginia, not too far away from Washington.
0: When, when did you uh, go back to Virginia then?
1: Um, I came back to Virginia in 1990 when I opened the practice. Um, I had been, after I left the city and then went on to vet school. I circled around. After vet school, I worked in uh, England for a few years and then um, came back and worked up in uh, New Jersey for a couple of years.
0: So was, when did veterinary medicine become a thing that you uh, were interested in?
1: Uh, they tell me probably when I was about four or five years old. All, all I can ever remember was wanting to be one of the, or wanting to be the first female horse vet. And there were already female horse vets, but I just didn't know them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, did you have horses when you were young?
1: No, I was as a city kid. I did get to ride, though. Apparently, they tell me again that um, when I was about four years old, I insisted that I wanted riding lessons. And so my mother found a stable when they still had stables down in you know, the city. And uh, so I started riding when I was about four and probably didn't get my first horse till I was 10 or 11. And uh, then it went on from there.
0: Where did you uh, go for undergrad then?
1: Um, undergrad... I I kind of took a little detour after college, or I mean, after high school, actually, Mm -hmm. and took about three years figuring out life and uh, figuring out what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew I wanted to be a vet, but I was at a stage where I just hitchhiked around the countryside and bummed out and cleaned stalls and went to vet tech school here in Northern Virginia. And as soon as I got in there, I knew that I had to go on. And so I stayed in the community college for a couple of years and then went down to the University of Georgia because at that time we didn't have a vet school in Virginia and the University of Georgia was our main contract class. Uh. So then by the time I was actually ready to apply, Virginia was opening its, its uh, guinea pig that's cool. So I was in the guinea pig class in the first class to go through Virginia Tech. How was that? It was actually, it was a great experience because we didn't have, we didn't have the fancy schools. We didn't have the, um, I mean, we had a trailer for our, um, a trailer for our hangout place, for our, some of our studying. We had just a couple of aisles of um, stalls for the horses and cattle. We had a small, you know, just what would be a conventional small animal clinic. But what we did have that was, that made it, I think, a really neat experience is that we were, as the first class, we had full access to the professors. The professors were young and really wanted to be there. There was no tenured anything. There were no, um, there were no interns residents ahead of us, so we were it. so we we got to we got to do anything we wanted to do. I was doing anesthesia and, and getting paid for it in my senior year, actually, in my junior year, I think, so because there wasn't
0: anybody else to do it. You must have uh, that must have been great. I mean, a lot of practical experience for sure, right?
1: Yes, and and we got to hang out in the in. I used to hang out in the in the uh, horse barns after hours and help out with some of the emergencies, which meant that I usually fell asleep during my small animal classes, and sometimes <laughs> during my <laughs> during my horse classes too.
0: <laughs> so you when you were doing anesthesia, you were doing large animal anesthesia too.
1: Yeah, I was. I was actually doing equine anesthesia. That was my. That was. Uh, somehow sort of became a thing in vet school and continued on. I did a little bit of it in, in uh, England as well.
0: Hours of boredom interrupted by moments of sheer terror, as they say.
1: Exactly. <laughs> it is not my thing. It never was my thing, but somehow I just ended up
0: doing it. <laughs> oh, man. So um, after graduation, you went to Europe. What, what brought that on?
1: I was, my real interest was equine sports medicine, exercise physiology. And at that time in 1984, they had really not much happening in this country in that field. And there were some um, active people in England, in Scotland, actually. And uh, so I, um, I went over there in my, between my sophomore and junior year, I think, or between my junior and senior year, I can't remember. But I went over there to, to Scotland to work with one of the people who was doing a lot of exercise physiology research. And he was planning on moving down to England and at the Animal Health Trust, which is a big kind of clinical research place over in uh, um, near Cambridge. And so I went over, got to know him working in Scotland just as a student and then uh, got a job when he opened up an exercise physiology unit with a treadmill and all kinds of, of stuff. So we were doing, had a stable full of horses and, and we're doing um, clinical research right there in the, the main racing part of England.
0: So what sort of things were you, were you studying?
1: Um, doing a lot of muscle fiber research and muscle contraction, and um, that was kind of the, the focus at that point in time. I really was not interested in doing a PhD. I was more interested in in the practical application, the training of the horses. We did a lot of heart rate recovery. We did a lot of blood work, collecting blood while the horses were actually working, and um, And so we, we, I even went to Sweden at one point because that's where single muscle fiber research was really hot and learned from the professors there and brought a little bit of that back to, to England, but it still wasn't really my thing. I'm much more a clinical person. So, uh,
0: so these are race, this is racehorse kind of research then.
1: That was a lot of racehorse research. And at that time, most of the sports medicine research was racehorse. They started doing a little bit of gait analysis with other kinds of sport horses. Um, But back in those days, it was a lot of blood work, a lot of training types of studies with trotters or thoroughbreds.
0: Um, Heart rate monitors, doing that sort of thing on, on a treadmill.
1: Yep. Yeah, and heart rate uh, monitors galloping and and uh, recording, keeping looking at recovery rate, heart rate recovery rates. Um, no interesting, useful, basic science.
0: Yeah. So, what sort of what sort of technology were you using for gait analysis back then?
1: It was just at the very beginning of. <laughs> yeah. Sort of, i not. I must have had some kind of a, must have had some kind of a video camera by the time, the late 80s. Um, putting some markers on horses' legs. Um, we we were not doing a lot of that at that research station, but Dr. Hillary Clayton was beginning to to mess around with it. Some of the um, people in the Netherlands, but. Um, It was, it was pretty rudimentary compared to what we have now.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, I was at Minnesota doing my postgraduate work in the late eighties. And I mean, we were, we were putting reflective dots on legs and, you know, using just video cameras and it's pretty, it was pretty basic. Yeah. So when did you come back home or back to New Jersey then?
1: So I, so I was in working over there. It was, it was. Probably not the, my favorite place to work at the time. Um, so I ended up actually doing a six month stint in uh, clinical practice in Ireland. I was, I was really wanting to get back to clinical practice and not, I'm just not a research kind of person. And uh, I actually went ahead and studied for and sat for my MRCVS while I was over there so I could t- stay in touch with the clinical. Aspect. so I would go up to the vet school at Cambridge and uh, hang out and learn the sort of british approach and then I found a job opportunity back then women in equine practice in England were really not <laughs> especially in American i mean <laughs>
0: yeah yeah
1: i had a, I had an American accent there was no two ways about it, so <laughs> there were no jobs in in equine in England, so I went to um found a job in Ireland, and he was really only interested in somebody for six months because he got really slow in the winter time. So I spent six months on the cura in Ireland working with racehorses and fox hunters, Irish style. And then it was time, it was almost time to come back. I had an opportunity to spend the winter in uh, St. Moritz doing a little bit of research on polo ponies, uh, working at high altitude. And that was kind of fun, yeah. you know. How else can how else can a, a youngster afford to spend time in Saint Moritz? Yeah, right. <laughs> in uh, Switzerland. So that was that was kind of cool. And uh, then I then it was time to come home and get to work. And actually, yeah. make a living. So um, I came back, and and uh, one of the people that I knew over in. Uh, England knew about this big practice in New Jersey, so they just happened to be needing a, a new person to replace one of their people who was leaving. So I went up and worked there for a couple of years. And it was really there that I, I was in a good practice situation in the sense that, that we were working with a lot of big fancy show horses and people who had money and you know we had the, we had some of the, one of the first ultrasound machines, probably in equine practice in this, in the country. So it was an advanced practice, but I, I just remember driving down the road one day going, you know, I thought I could really do something that would make a difference. And I didn't feel like what I was doing was doing it. Yeah. And Marvin Kane actually floated through the practice one time and, uh, You know, I was doing some acupuncture and I was I had already been interested in acupuncture before, even while I was in undergrad and had been to a lecture over in uh, in England that was probably put on by Ivis. I didn't know it at the time, but I'm pretty certain that it was. And then uh, when Marvin came through, I'm like, this is this is what I want to do and learn about. And since I didn't know there was a course until he came, I didn't have any real direction. I just had the old, uh, the original acupuncture book. And uh, I practiced a little bit, but it wasn't until, until I quit that practice and uh, went out to open up my own thing that I was able to devote myself, take the course and, and devote myself to holistic medicine.
0: So you came home in, I think, 1990, right? And you started. Your-
1: 1990, I moved back down to Virginia. I was looking for a place to open up my own practice, and that just seemed. I I got off the highway one day, and I said, "This is where I need to be," and uh, rented a house and opened a practice. And for the first year or so, I did conventional. I did anything at that yeah, point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So how'd you get settled in your practice then?
1: So the thing that really set set off my holistic career and my ability to to do just holistic medicine was this local newspaper that wrote an article about acupuncture and about me. And because it was very local and there wasn't many opportunities for acupuncture, just a couple of other people doing it, um, it, it really let me take off and just give up doing the regular work and, and doing and just doing acupuncture. And I was able to, because I wasn't running emergencies very much, I was able to sort of expand my driving area, which allowed me, it helped allow me to do just the holistic and.
0: Yeah. Gave you more control over your schedule. I'm sure.
1: Gave me a lot more control over my schedule. And, and in truth, that's been beneficial all the way through. It's really hard to have a solo equine practice where you're running emergencies because you never get any spare time.
0: Oh, it's, it's, it's impossible.
1: <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> so you did the IVIS course then?
1: So, yeah, I did the IVIS course, eight eighty-nine ninety and then, uh, I did, I think, the second chiropractic course that was um, started, and then I did the homeopathic course shortly after that with Richard Pitcairn, and and from then on, I seemed like I spent every other weekend in the airplane somewhere, taking a class somewhere, (laughs) whether it was advanced acupuncture or Homeopathy or whatever or whatever was around back in the nineties.
0: who were your instructors for the Ivis course?
1: Um, the limehouses Marvin kane um, those those were some of the primary teachers um there were definitely a few others, but it was it was mostly the limehouses and Marvin.
0: that's good enough
1: oh <laughs> uh, yeah. That was a good start. I mean, it's where a lot of us got our start. And uh, quite a a few people from that class have gone on to to contribute a lot to our holistic community.
0: Where was the course?
1: Uh, You know, it was either in Texas or Florida. There's... I can never remember where courses are held. I can never remember where I have spoken. I just remember (laughs) what I talked about. But I couldn't tell you if it was 1995 or 2015.
0: (laughs) Uh, You're not alone there. Um, So chiropractic was with Sharon.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Probably if if you were the second class, I was in Port Byron then, yeah?
1: Yes. Oh, yes. Port Byron, the... uh the center of non-gourmet food.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> so that would have been would that have been your first had you really been around uh DC's before that or no?
1: Um no, not so much. I mean I I got I met a chiropractor for myself actually when I was still working back up in New Jersey. So I was familiar with the concept of chiropractic, but Not with people, not with chiropractors working on horses or animals in general until that course.
0: What was it like being sitting alongside and and studying with chiropractors?
1: I found found it actually very useful because they just spent four years studying just spinal manipulation, where I'd spent four years studying anatomy and physiology. And so I think they really brought a lot to the table because of their um their skill that that you know we're just learning in a fairly short course and uh they've already spent you know way more time doing it than we had. Yeah. So I was I was pretty positive about that as an experience.
0: And Sharon was a gem, of course.
1: Oh yeah. 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 And that really, I mean, that was Start having those, that course is such a huge contribution to holistic medicine because without the physical manipulation and the physical body work, thing, even working with horses, things like acupuncture can only go so far yeah. because horses trash themselves consistently.
0: When did you start getting interested in saddle fit then?
1: That kind of started around that time. I think I started maybe even before or right around the time of the chiropractic course. I ran into a woman who had studied a little bit of saddle fitting. And so it made sense to me. And so I hung out with her and then I started looking at the patterns and the damage that I was seeing in the horses and the whole thing just made total sense. And so I really started to study it. Had the opportunity to study with some amazing people, amazingly talented saddle fitters, saddle makers, and uh, so I became kind of obsessed by it, which is what then turned into the book.
0: Yeah. So you were you were taking that right into your practice then and doing saddle fitting for your clients?
1: Yes. Yes. I did a lot of saddle fitting in those days. And in fact, probably sometime in the, in the nineties, there was a computerized saddle fitting unit that became available. And I went ahead and got one. And that allowed me to actually study the pressures underneath the saddle with the horse in motion. And that taught me a huge amount. And, you know, I, presented a couple of papers on it even um mostly kind of sports medicine meetings because people were interested i got turned down at the AAEP one time just because saddle fitting the comment was that saddle fitting was really a trainer's problem not a vet problem
0: jeez <laughs> <laughs> oh, so what so what was the population of your uh, what sort of makeup was your practice what sort of horses were you seeing
1: you know, this, this area of Virginia, when I was much younger, was mostly racehorses. But by the time I came back here in 1990, it was starting to be a lot of sport horses. And we actually have a little bit of everything, not, not a lot of Western, but some. We have every English sport that there is, and it's actually become a big eventing area it's a huge dressage area. It's, it's trail riding The endurance, big center for endurance riding at that time. Mm-hmm. And so I really had access to all kinds of horses and I was heavily involved in the endurance world. So that's a great place to learn about saddle fitting because the horses backs change over a hundred miles.
0: Oh yeah. Um, what um, at what point did you become? I know you were involved a little bit in working with the AAP and the AVMA. I mean, what sort of time frame were you? Can you recall when that was?
1: That was that was in the nineties. That was probably getting into the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, through the AAP, I was hanging out with the sports medicine group, and and that's how they brought me into their formulating their their policies or guidances for alternative medicine. And I think because of the work with AEP, then they asked me to be on the AVMA committee for coming up with alternative medicine guidelines, if you will.
0: Yeah. And,
1: uh, and that was an interesting process.
0: What just to back up a little bit, what was, what kind of reception did you get with AEP? being a non-traditional practitioner
1: what was interesting with aap is that the sports medicine group the sort of sports medicine committee i'm not sure whether it was actually a committee but it was it was a um a little subset if you will of, of aap and there was at that point aesm american equine sports medicine association yep and uh there were quite a few sort of semi-prominent AAP members in that group.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they seemed to sort of tolerate me, even though um, even though I was, and back then being female was probably a little bit of a strike against me. Mm-hmm. Um, being alternative didn't help, but they needed an alternative practitioner. And I guess maybe I was the least offensive. (laughs) I mean, or, you know, who knows what was really going through their head as far as as why they accepted me. I do I do have a tendency to try to not to be politically polite and listen. And I think that probably helped. I'm not trying wasn't trying to, to stonewall people and say, um, or strong arm people and say this is the only way um, I really did want to make it a positive interaction so who knows it's hard to say
0: I have to think your science background gave you extra credibility though
1: it probably did i mean at that point I had several papers published um, from the research exercise physiology group and and that's an international group um, and and I had written a number of papers for um, the AESM and um, a couple of publications around that time. That I actually had research papers in my in my background.
0: Yeah. What? How did you manage your time? I mean, obviously, you know, emergencies, so that at least put some some regularity to your schedule. But how did you get all this writing done? And still drive around and treat horses. You know, that's why I'm retiring now.
1: <laughs> Back in those days, somehow I did it. I don't, you know, and I managed to ride a horse and, and do a little bit of competing and um and it it helped that I didn't have I didn't have kids and I didn't have a family. So I had plenty of time. I sort of learned how to use a computer, though. Truthfully, I still can't type. Um, And so what I kind of did in my time off is I wrote. And it's uh, now that I've become, shall we say, mature, (laughs) maybe, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I find I can't do all of that. And so, but I, I mean, I look back at what I did and I had no idea how I did it all.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, so now let's talk about the AVMA. How, what was it like to work on that committee?
1: That was a very interesting time. Um, David Ramey, who was a very prominent quackbuster, who still is a prominent quackbuster, um, was on the committee. And the whole idea was, I think, to have Somebody who was alternative, that was me. Somebody who was anti-alternative, that was David. And then Hugh caraman was representing the, the livestock mm. industry side of it. Yeah. On the holistic end. Yeah. Um, a small animal practitioner, I can't remember his name now, was was the chairman, and he was very he was a very good chairman, but it was very interesting to see is change in perspective because I think there was a lot of lobbying that was done behind our backs Mm -hmm. when we weren't there. And so we would come, we actually had to come to meetings in Chicago and, uh, we, you know, we, we would discuss word by word those words that are in the AVMA guidelines yeah, And phrase by phrase, hash it out and try to sort of dumb it down and make it palatable. But as the, the dynamics of it were such that we knew there was a lot going on behind the scenes that we were not privy to.
0: Yeah. How long did you work on the, on those guidelines? Do you remember?
1: We probably worked over a year you know three or four physical meetings and then a bunch of emails back and forth i think there was at least three physical meetings
0: all right and those guidelines that we see now in the in the model practice act are they pretty similar to what i mean have they changed at all
1: i don't think they've i don't think they've changed much if at all i don't i think they were going to revisit it at one point but i'm not sure they actually ever did
0: yeah, I, I mean, as far as I can remember, just seeing them over time, they look pretty similar. Yeah. All right, I want to talk about endurance riding a little bit. So, you got started. Did you start vetting rides then?
1: I started vetting rides in vet school, actually, uh, and uh, even even undergrad. I was hmm. I was assisting. I wasn't obviously vetting, but yeah, I was assisting, and I used to drag the vet students out on endurance rides to, uh, to watch lamenesses because it was a great teaching ground. So all through vet school, I was going out and judging endurance rides. I judged endurance, all the big endurance rides in England when I was over there, which was a great way to see the countryside and then continued judging here probably for eight or 10
0: more years. You enjoyed sleeping in a tent on cold, hard ground then?
1: Tent? You mean they actually <laughs> got a tent? At <laughs> the back of the car, the, <laughs> the grass. <laughs> we weren't even sophisticated enough to have a tent.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, but you're right. You do, you do get to see a lot of lamenesses.
1: You see a lot of lamenesses. You see a lot of you see a lot of metabolic conditions, but you really see you really see gate change, and you can see you can see gate improve. You can see gate, um, fall apart as the day and night go on. So it's fascinating that way.
0: I, I worked a lot of rides in the upper Midwest and, and not only was that really, really helpful, but just, you know, uh, dealing with the, uh, the subtle, the subtle, um, Implications from the rider about how well their horse looked, you know, like oh, you know, they they all of a sudden they can't see a lameness that you know is pretty obvious and, mm-hmm. and how to work with people. It, it was really oh, a, yeah. a good primer on how to do that. Um, yeah. So, when did you get involved with working with the national team? Then,
1: you know, that was that was probably early mid nineties because I had been around it. And I had judged all over England when I came back here and um, started my practice. I'm right in the back of Old Dominion um, Hundred Mile Ride country, Mm -hmm. and knew you know I knew all the vets from the years of of both um, assisting and as a student and then um, judging. And uh, so, so I was I was judging the big rides. So they they ended up selecting me for vetting for the USA East team, or I think we did two different, um, we did, we do the world championship and then the North American. I can't remember exactly. It's amazing what you can kind of forget. Oh yeah. Um, But, uh, and that, that was a very interesting experience. And truthfully, it did not keep me, um, gung ho to stay in the sport for a long period of time
0: mm-hmm.
1: started to get the big money came in from the Saudis and yeah. coming in, buying up horses used to be able to buy an endurance horse for two or $3,000. And it suddenly was 50,000, which was a lot of money back then or 10,000 or 20,000 way changed the, the tone of the sport. It changed the interest of the people in, in putting the horse first. Because mm-hmm. the Saudis wouldn't buy anything that had been pulled yep. from a ride. And so the uh, the fun of the sport changed. And, and I began to, after the second um, international vetting job, I, was, I wasn't I was done right at that point, but it was probably a couple of years after that, where it's like, I, I really wanted... To be involved when people were putting the horse first, yeah. but not when they were trying to get around
0: cut corners. Did you ever travel to, uh, the UAE?
1: No, I didn't. No, I sort of got out of it before that became the reality. Yeah. Did you?
0: No, no, but there were other docs that I worked with in the, in the Midwest that that went to, mm-hmm. to, to the clinic over there and really, and just raved about it. Yeah. All right. So you're changing gears now in your career. What's happening? So
1: because I can't do all the things that I used to do (laughs) and because it's gotten to the point where it's either work or play or find time to write, something had to give and and one of the things that that i think is really important actually is to be able to leave a legacy or or leave leave information behind and i don't have an associate who's been studying under me and so a lot of the information that i have stuck in my brain is stuck there unless i get it out so if i retire from active practice and then I can much more at my leisure during the day instead of staying up until 11 o'clock at night writing. I can put together a course and information and get it out to the horse people and the vets, basically anybody who wants it, and make it into um, something. I mean, I started it, I was going to do it with CIBT five, six, seven, eight years ago. And it's just not going to happen um, as long as I'm working. I work on stuff January, February, and then as soon as March comes, I'm busy. And, and then I find myself, if I'm going to do something, then I'm writing all weekend. And so then I'm not having any fun. Yeah. So the way to have some fun and to do some writing is to leave active practice. But not, I don't want to to leave totally. I do want to share what I know. So that's a lot of the motivation behind it.
0: Sure. Did you, did the idea of an associate just never, never come to fruition or was that something you didn't want to do?
1: I didn't really want to do it. I did have an associate at one point, long time ago, probably back in the nineties. And it, it, didn't end up working out all that great as many associate kind of positions often don't with different kind of goals and different in a very small, you know, two person practice environment for it to succeed. You really need people who are well matched and uh, and it just never decided that I didn't really want the management headache and I was happy enough working on my own i certainly had students come through many times and uh, but the idea of managing another you know, expanding the practice for the sake of expanding the practice, you don't end up making any more money. <laughs> and in fact, um, after I had a, a round with cancer back in 2005, And that really made me rethink about how much I wanted to expand or contract. So I contracted the practice and made it so that I could continue practicing, but at a little bit slower rate. And so then at that point, it was definitely I didn't want to get an associate because that would have been more staff and more more work, would not have been less work.
0: You bet. So how are your clients taking the news?
1: Well, at least to my face, they've been very uh, <laughs> they've been uh, friendly about it and congratulating me. And um, I am sure there's some words that go on behind my back. Um, and there's definitely people who, have you know, are feeling a little bit lost. I have clients that I've had for 20 and 30 years, but um, it's. It's time, and and there are a few other local practitioners who are doing some holistic medicine who can take over and uh, it's kind of expand some of their practice. So I think that will work out. And at some point, just realizing that you know we are we are not indispensable. There are others that can do the same. Work. They may not do it the same way, but um, one of the other things is that I've watched some of my friends not retire and end up not being able to do what they wanted to do in retirement, either because they're they're too old or they get sick or um, it's they're they're not able to fulfill what they wanted to do or plan to do. So I still have my health. And I still have the ability to do both—to have some fun and do some writing and make a contribution. So it's—I'm leaving. I'm leaving my clients, but I am going to leave them with some information.
0: Seems like it's the right time.
1: It is definitely it's the right time. I'm looking <laughs> forward to it.
0: Good, <laughs> Joyce. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk. Thanks for your service to our medicine. Um, you've been an inspiration and I really look forward to seeing what you do with your, with the next chapter.
1: Thank you. I'm looking forward to it too. And in the next chapter, both having some fun and, and making some different contributions.
0: Good. Well, Joyce, I hope to see you soon.
1: Hope to see you soon. Take care.
0: Thanks. Bye-bye.